For a gift that goes beyond the holidays, don't miss the Xfinity Beyond Black Friday event. Ask how to get $150 back on a package with the ultimate Wi-Fi and Xfinity X1. Your all-in-one entertainment experience. Simple, easy, awesome. Click, call, or visit us today. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. The Geeky Retro Nerd Show is part of the art, comedy, and pop culture network of podcasts. Hello, how are you doing? Welcome back. Thanks for listening again. Welcome back. Welcome to the Geeky Retro Nerd Show. My name is Adam and I am a Geeky Retro Nerd. And this show, as always, you know, don't you? You know, is sponsored by TruffleShuffle.com. The lovely people at TruffleShuffle.com. The tremendous people at TruffleShuffle.com who do so much for me. Thank you so much, Truffle Shuffle. Head on over to their website because they are doing so much for you as well by giving you a discount by using my exclusive discount code for you, my listeners. Head over to truffleshuffle.com, use the discount code GRNS15, that is GRNS15, and you will get 15% off a spend of £25 or more. And I know you already know this, there is international shipping, so nobody misses out. And while I'm in the mood for thanking people, thank you so much to the executive producers for this episode. Glyn Davies, Joy Gradwell from Mind Active, Karnak Comics in Cumbernauld and Mark Straker. Would you like to be an executive producer of this show? Of course you would. It's a great show. (laughs) Would you like to have your name up in lights and get a mention on this show? Have a look at the Libre Repair link in the episode notes and all will be revealed there and you could have your name mentioned on this show and up on all my social media channels. Now then, I'm looking out the window here. I've, I've, I've moved where I do my podcasting because we are due another baby uh, next March. <laughs> another one. This is my third child. And um, uh, my son, Zach, has moved into another bedroom to free up the nursery. We wanted to do that ahead of Christmas. So I'm in a different room and I am now next to a window. And I'm looking out the window and I can see Christmas lights, Christmas decorations, um, ornaments out on people's front lawns. Yes, it's nearly Christmas, which means that we are very, very close to the release of my most anticipated movie of the year, The Rise of Skywalker. Are you looking forward to The Rise of Skywalker? The trailer so far and the TV spots look tremendous. I'm really, really excited for it. I've got my tickets booked. I've got my tickets booked for the midnight showing on release. Me and my wife, um, I I don't know if she actually wants to go, (laughs) but I'll be there anyway. Super excited. So that's why I've been doing a run of Star Wars-related guests on the show, just for you. So the last episode was Dominic, Dominic Pace, great, great fella. He is in The Mandalorian. He features as a bounty hunter gecko. Uh, He was mainly in episode three. Have you seen it? Have you seen The Mandalorian? What do you think? It's pretty good, isn't it? Uh, Actually, no, I haven't seen it (laughs) because it's not out yet here in the UK, so I haven't seen it. 
<laughs> it's pretty good, though, isn't it? Um, and I've got another Star Wars guest for you on this show. And what a guest. Come on, what a guest. Paul Hirsch, the editor of the original Star Wars, and he won an Oscar. He won an Oscar for Star Wars. Incredible. Really nice fella. He's got a brand new book out. We talk about his brand new book. We talk about his work on Star Wars. Do you want to have a listen? Of course you do. Here we go. So on the show today, it's it's an absolute privilege, and I'm so, so pleased that this guest um, has agreed to come on the show. Not only has this person got a career that spans five decades, this person has worked with directors like Brian De Palma, George Lucas, John Hughes, and this guest is my very, very first Oscar winner on the podcast, and I'm absolutely chuffed to bits. Welcome to the show, Paul Hirsch. Paul, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. Thank you very much for having me on. You are more than welcome. And like I just said there, Paul, you you are the first person I have had on the show who was an actual Academy Award winner. Well, you know, the award, as I've said before, the award is very nice, but what really matters is the work. I mean, years later, what people remember is the movie. They don't remember who won the award for what, you know. Um, I mean, I'm not unhappy about it. I'm not giving it back or anything like that. (laughs) I'm I'm just saying that, you know, What's pleasing is that uh, people remember the work, and, yeah. and that's that's what really matters in the end. And, and we've got plenty to remember for you, Paul. Uh, more than forty movies to your name, I believe. Um, and like I said before, you've done a, you've done a number of films with Brian De Palma. Uh, and you've worked with George Lucas, John Hughes. Um, you know, you, you haven't been messing around, have you? <laughs> You know, I have to support myself. You, you know, you have to earn a living in this world. Yeah, too true, too true. So let's let's start with your book, Paul. You've you've got a new book out. Um, it only came out the other day, didn't it? Um, a, a long time ago in a cutting room far, far away. <laughs> um, what well, what can we expect from from this book, Paul? Well, I didn't want to write a how-to book. Uh, those books were always uh, kind of boring to me, and um, I wanted the book to be entertaining as well as informative. Mm-hmm. It's fun to read, and I hope it will give uh, a picture of the fascinating and uh, extraordinarily creative people I've had the good fortune to collaborate with, and as well as some of the aesthetic challenges we faced in the projects and how we solved some of them, and in general, what it was like to be uh, an editor in Hollywood over the the end of the last uh, millennium and the beginning of this one. Is uh, it a is it is it a biography, Paul? Well, it's a it's an autobiography insofar as it deals with my work life. Yeah, it's not so much about me personally, you know, in, in terms of my family. Right. The family is mentioned in the book. Mm-hmm. My son has become a mixer, and my daughter has become an editor like me. So, all right, Fab. They sort of followed me into the business, but um, it's it's focused primarily on my life, when I, how I got into the business, and how I met the people that I worked with, and a lot of 
uh, interesting stories of things that happened to me on, along the way. I bet. And I'm really looking forward to reading it. I haven't read it yet. Like I say, it only came out the other day. Um, but I've, I've got my eye on it. Really looking forward to reading it. Why Why did you want to write this book, Paul? Why did you want to, um, you know, bring this book out? Well, um, I think, you know, anyone who's engaged in uh, the arts in any kind of uh, way, uh, part of the reason for your, you know, part of the motivation for what you're doing is that you want to be remembered. You want to make a mark on the world. You know, you want to uh, carve your initials in the tree of life. And uh, so people can look back and, you know, and notice that you were, you were here. Uh, yeah. That's part of it. And the other part was that um, it started when I was on location in Vancouver by myself. My wife, Jane, had stayed behind in Los Angeles Right. And I was alone on the weekend and kind of bored. And I had been telling these stories with some success. Uh, and I thought to myself, I should really write these stories down. And uh, and that's how it started. Because I think I read somewhere when I was researching this conversation, you've, you've been t- taking notes that have contributed to this book for a number of years, haven't you? Well, I did a very smart thing when I started out, which is I made an outline of the things I wanted to write about. Because if I started from scratch now, I wouldn't remember half of the things I, I did write. <laughs> um, memory is one of the things that does not improve with age, although many other things do. But um, anyway, I made this outline. And then I worked on the book for something like 18 years, not steadily, of course, but yeah. Uh, I would work on it, you know, on weekends occasionally. Sometimes if I got busy at work, I would drop it for two or three years at a time. So I wasn't, uh, you know, I was just chipping away at it. And uh, I had this outline. And, of course, as the years went by, I had had new experiences, and I added those to the list. Mm-hmm. And um, so the list got uh, longer even as I was writing. <laughs> you know, I was, I had this this printed list that uh, of notes to myself or little things to remind, jog my memory. Mm-hmm. And if I wrote about it, I would, I would put it in bold. So if it was in bold, I knew I had written about it. I'd go on to the next subject. And uh, so the stuff I had to write about, even though I was doing a lot of writing, the list of stuff I had to write about got longer. Um, right. So it was, you know, 50 years, a lot of things happen in 50 years. Yeah, well, I'm I'm just looking at a list here of your movies, and uh, I don't know how you found the time <laughs> to do them all. You know, as I got older, the periods of employment got shorter, and the periods of unemployment got longer. And uh, this is why they call it a career arc, because right. you know, whatever goes up must come down. And uh, so I had more time as time went on, and I finished the first draft uh, in the summer of 2017. And um, um, I had a friend of mine, Nick Meyer, who directed some of the best uh, Star Trek movies, and he um, directed The Day After, probably the best uh, filmed drama about nuclear disaster. Yeah. Nick is an old friend, and he offered to read the book for me, and and he did, and he gave me a lot of notes. he said, I'll edit the book for you, but the editing that he, you know, was more like suggesting more things to write about. He would say, well, how did you feel when this happened to you? And, you know, his son, his father was a psychiatrist, so there's no <laughs> sense of 
how did that make you feel? And, <laughs> you know, so, I mean, but they were helpful notes. And then at the end of that process, when he got through it, he introduced me to a literary agent who had represented him in the past. Nick also was the author of The 7% Solution, which was a Sherlock Holmes uh, knockoff that right. became a movie. It was a great success. And uh, anyway, so he introduced me to a his literary agent, and I discovered that the literary agents are the centuries guarding the publishing world. And if you can't get past, if you can't get a literary agent, you can't get in the door. Yeah. So he enabled me to meet one, and uh, she agreed to take the book on, provided I work with an editor that she recommended. Right. And, I asked, who pays for the editor? She said, you do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. But uh, the editor turned out to be wonderful. Her name is Jennifer Shute, and she was great and very enthusiastic about the book and very helpful. And we cut out about, oh, I don't know. Uh, I knew the first draft was long. I just didn't know where the cuts were. That's why she was so helpful. And uh, we cut out about twenty to 25,000 words. Wow from the original draft. Wow. And then uh, we started, uh, the the agent, Charlotte Sheedy, passed the book along to a man in her office, Kevin O'Connor, who handles nonfiction. And he put the book out for uh, sale to various publishing houses. And he started with the biggest houses of all. Yeah. You know, logically, they have the most money, pay the biggest advance and so forth. And yeah. I got rejected about 20 times, but then finally we were picked up by the Chicago Review Press, and that was about a year ago. Mm -hmm. Then uh, I started editing the book again, um, incorporating notes from from O'Connor and from um, the editors at Chicago Review Press, and... Um, I worked on the book, you know, intensively, I would say, for another six months, and we locked it in about uh, June of last year. Of this year, rather. Yeah. Wait. Is that right? I'm confused. <laughs> yeah, it was this year. This year. And and what was it like when you finished it? You know, what, what it must have been a relief, was it, after after all that time, making your notes and writing it and going through the process of, of um, getting a you know, the, the publisher and, and what have you. Was it a relief when you finished, Paul? Not really, because as a friend of mine used to say that films are never finished, they're just abandoned, you know. <laughs> uh, I had that feeling also then, you know, when they said, okay, this is the deadline, you know, I said, wait, I need a few more days, you know. So they'd give me a few more days and say, and this is the absolute deadline. And then, <laughs> So even now, you know, I'm preparing uh, some excerpts to read at book signings and I'm thinking, oh, I wish I could rewrite this, you know? I mean, so, you know, it's just, you work on it until it's taken out of your hands, and but you, you don't feel like you're finished, you know? Yeah, so you're, you're still tinkering around with it. Well, you know, you, you, you never stop getting ideas. Yeah. So, um, anyway, it is what it is. I mean, I've learned over time that uh, perfect is the enemy of good, and you just have to live with the decisions you've made, and it's, you know... Uh, it's that's good enough for me. I, I know I can make it better, but it's it's enough already, you know. It's and and is that what you were like with your movies, Paul? You know, you would 
obviously you'll have deadlines to get the movies done, edited, uh, get them out there. Were, were you the same with your movies? You were always thinking, mm, I could probably improve that or it could have improved that or done that differently? Well, it's a little different because in the movies, I'm in a subordinate position uh, working for the director and really it's the director who drives that process. Mm-hmm. Um, editors have to be in the suggestion business. I have to, you know, my ideas are for somebody else's consumption and not for me to act on, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I I'll, sh- I'll act on them and show them and I either I get approved or not. But, you know, mm-hmm. because of the collaborative nature of filmmaking, um, there is a hierarchical uh, relationship and somebody has to be in charge and it's not the editor but um i in my book i talk about uh, a friend of mine a director named jonathan lynn who directed uh who wrote and and sorry he didn't direct he wrote uh yes minister and yes prime minister along with anthony J. and um he we were talking about something or other and uh the prime minister going of England going to the Queen to co- to consult on some appointment he wanted to make, and I said, "Well, I'm confused. I thought I thought the Queen didn't have any power." He said, "Yeah, it's true. She doesn't have any power, but she has influence." So I thought, "Oh, film editors are like the Queen of England. <laughs> we don't have any power, but we do have influence." Yeah. So. Um, so that's how you have to operate. You know, you, you're you're not necessarily in charge, but you. There are situations in which your powerlessness gives you power because you're not imposing your ideas on anyone. You're just floating them out there, and um, people are not threatened when they're not uh, forced to accept your suggestion. So many times, the suggestion is adopted because the person making the decision doesn't feel threatened by it. You know. Yeah, well, well so, you, you know, you must you must have been good at it because you've, you know, you've been you've been involved in um, uh, plenty of movies. Um, so to be able to do that and have that influence, Paul, I would say it's essential to have a good relationship with the director. Is it? Yes, um, that helps. <laughs> <laughs> and did you find that you did have a good relationship on most of your movies, or did you did you have a few challenges over the years? Well, you know, people vary, of course, and some of my relationships were uh, friendlier and more successful than others. Mm-hmm. When I, it's funny when I started writing the book, you know, uh, I thought to myself, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell all, and you know. I'm going, to sh- I'm going to get my revenge on these people <laughs> who mistreated me, were rude to me, insensitive, you know. And then, and then as I wrote the book, I realized that I've been extraordinarily fortunate in my career, and I've met incredible people, and I've had incredible experiences, and uh, worked on great films that have become very well known. And oh, yeah. I thought, there's no, there's no whining on the yacht, you know. Uh, you can't complain when you've had a career like mine. So uh, I just thought, well, I'll just leave these people out. You know, the ones, the ones that I don't write about, you can surmise that it was not a great relationship. And something that something else I was thinking about when I was looking at the list of movies you've worked on, Paul. You know, the the your first one was back in 1970, 
Uh, your most recent one, I think, was um, 2017 or 2018. And I was yeah. thinking to myself, how much has technology changed in that time? It, it must yeah. it must be massive. Yeah, well, we're all living through it. We're all going through it together, you know. Um, I don't know how old you are, but... 39. Know, 39, so let me see. It's so a 1980s year. They're my son's age. Uh, well, you knew that you grew up with computers in the home, I imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I guess you remember the introduction of the internet. Yes, <laughs> I do. 12 or so. Yeah, yeah. That's when email began. Yes. And then the, the iPhone wasn't invented until 2007. Mm-hmm. And think of how much has changed since then. I mean, it's just uh. extraordinary. It's a, it's, you know, when people were converting to digital editing uh, in, from film to digital, uh, there was a big panic about, can I learn how to do this? You know, and that, that went away very quickly. But, um, I, you know, and people said, well, I learned how to do it. You know, and I thought, you learn how to do this. But it's not like it's not like it's going to stay like this, you know? <laughs> yeah. Constantly evolving, isn't it? And that was something I was thinking about. How do you learn? How how do you how do you keep um, building your skills and knowledge to to be able to move with the times? Well, the good thing about editing is it's not technological. It's not right. a it's not a technical skill. It's you know it's uh, the the technology involves the tools, but it doesn't involve the substance of the work that you do, and. You know, writing is not about the typewriter or, or the pen. You know what I mean? Uh, I don't think Shakespeare would have written greater plays if he had had a word processor. Yeah. Uh, it's it's something else that's going on. So if they change the tools, you know, it's it's not a big deal. I mean, presumably they do it in ways that are friendly enough for the user to use. And uh, I discovered when you know when I first was introduced to computers, I thought, wow, I could go really fast on this thing. You know, because <laughs> me. Uh, it was like an automatic splicing machine. Um, on film, you had to cut and draw, you know, a scotch tape over the splice. And so <laughs> you had to make sure the splice was nice and didn't have bubbles in it. So that would be distracting on the cut. And uh, we were fashioning an artifact at the same time as we were cutting the film. We were making a work print. And the work print was used for projection as well as a guide to the negative cutter how to cut the film so we had to make it look nice and pretty and uh take good care of it and would be cleaned and you know um didn't want to drag it on the floor or anything and so there was an art there was an arts and crafts it was a crafts element to to the art as well that sort of went away but as soon as i got a uh my first you know the first week that i was working on a computer i thought wow this is this is going to be really easy. This is going to make it really easy. And it has. Uh, I would go, I would average about 10 minutes a week on film. I could cut about 10 minutes a week. And on the average, you know, and yeah. with uh, computers, you can go 15, 20, 25, 30, sometimes, you know, there's hardly a limit to how fast you can go, depending on if you want to put in the hours, you know. So, um, and then various things about how we thought about film started to change and um for instance i always think in terms of reels but it's sort of uh sort of gone away but 
uh, it's been an interesting process. I, I sometimes wish the software engineers would leave well enough alone and stop <laughs> changing things all the time. You know, you get used to something working the way it does, and then all of a sudden they change and say, oh, why change that? That was a good thing they got rid of. You know, why do they do that? But <laughs> and it's, and you, so you said before, Paul, that you had you you know you had better relationships with some directors than others. I'm guessing I'm guessing Brian De Palma was one of the directors that you had a better relationship with because you've you've done a fair few movies with Mr. De Palma, haven't you? Yeah, we did eleven pictures together, and uh, yeah, I love Brian, and he was very important in my career in my early career as a young editor. And he promoted me, and he encouraged me, and he endorsed my choices, and uh, he empowered me. And he, you know, he was a terrific mentor, and I learned a lot from working with him. And um, he had a very particular uh, take on filmmaking, and it influenced my uh, understanding of how stories are told. And uh, yeah, he. We haven't worked together for a long time because at a certain point in my career, I moved to the West Coast. Right. He stayed in largely in New York. Whenever he had a picture that was in California, he would call me, which is how I wound up doing uh, Mission Impossible. Um, but, you know, largely it was a function of my living in L.A. and he was in New York. And then he did some pictures in Europe, which is really not friendly to American editors. All right. Um, it's funny because European editors can work here fairly easily, but uh, it's not, the, I, I have been able to, excuse me, I have been able to work in, in the UK, um, but uh, the continent seems to be largely off limits. All right. Why, why is that? I don't know. I guess it's the uh, uh, incentives or whatever, you know, they, all right. The European producers are obligated to hire European crews, I suppose. Right. Got you. Because your first five films were with Brian De Palma, weren't they? Hi, Mom, Sisters, Phantom of the Paradise, Carrie, and Obsession. Obsession. Yeah. I mean, what what an introduction to, uh, to your career. <laughs> yeah, well, nobody else would give me a job. <laughs> so how how did you how did you end up getting in tour with Brian De Palma? How did how did you end up working with him and, and working on that first movie, Hi Mom? Well, I go into this in some detail in the book. Um, I had, you know, where do you begin a story? I don't really know. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, I, you know. I, and to shorten it a bit, jumping into the middle of it, I was cutting trailers uh, right. at a certain point in my life. And um, my brother, Charles, was um, had talked himself into a job at Universal Studios in New York, uh, scouting young directing and writing talents. And I think he was basically put there as a lightning rod to deflect attention from people looking for money from the studio. Uh, away from the executives who had more important things to do. So he would interview and talk, you know, anyone who wanted to support from the studio would come to Charles. And uh, one of the people who came in with a project was Brian De Palma. And he recommended um, a project to the studio and the studio turned him down. So 
they decided that uh, he had a two-week vacation coming to him, and he decided they would shoot this picture during the two weeks that he had off. And um, that picture was called Greetings, and one of the actors in it, uh, it was about young men who were trying to avoid the draft. Uh, nice. In 68, um, the, the draft board would send out letters the selective service system would send out letters. And if you got a letter in the mail, it started with greetings. You knew you, right. were, you were in trouble because you know, greetings. The selective service system would like you to report for induction to blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And, uh, so this movie, Greetings, was about three young guys who were trying to get out of the draft because nobody wanted to be shipped to Vietnam um, against their will. Mm -hmm. uh, so Bob De Niro was one of the three young guys. So wow. then they did a trailer. They needed a trailer for the picture. And since I was cutting trailers at the time, they came to me and I cut a trailer for it. And Ryan liked it and we hit it off. And uh, then the picture was sort of a success. And they got the money to do a sequel, which was to be called Son of Greetings. But um, we changed the title eventually. But that was my first feature film that was high mom yeah so then yeah so then uh, that was my first experience with brian and uh three years went by before he called again <laughs> uh so i was cutting uh sort of low budget commercials and filling in you know, i kept cutting trailers and tv spots and uh ads for record collections, the great Italian love songs. Uh, <laughs> we had Louis Prima introduce this commercial. He was the spokesman. Uh, it's funny, one of the first things I cut. Anyway, um, after three years, during those three years, Brian went out to California, 1971, and uh, did a picture for Warner Brothers, and he couldn't hire me because I wasn't in the union out there. I wasn't right. in the union anywhere, actually. Right. And, um, so he went off to do this picture, and he, he got into a political struggle with the producers, and he was fired. Wow. But I had been out there um, while he was cutting the picture, and he had screened the picture for me, and I gave him notes. And um, he remembered, of course, and apparently the notes were in sync with what he was thinking. Right. And then he came back to New York and he did a picture called Dionysus in 69, which was a film record of a, an off-Broadway performance of a play uh, based on Dionysus. And then he got... Uh, financing for a horror picture called Sisters. And he was going to cut it himself, but luckily for me, there was, an, you know, this, the Sisters were, was a story about uh, a pair of conjoined twins who were, who had been separated. Right. And um, luckily for me, there was another movie about twins that was being made in another studio. And the producer, Ed Pressman, didn't feel they could wait until Brian was available to cut the movie, so he insisted on hiring an editor, and I got the call. 
And uh, that was a turning point for me because uh, it was on that picture that I, I uh, was introduced to the great Bernard Herrmann, whose music I had used in the temp track and led to his employment on the film. Right. So that was uh, an exciting time. And then Sisters was a, you know, pretty much pretty, pretty successful. And um, that cemented my relationship with Brian. Yeah. Another two years went by and he got money for another film. The next film was Phantom of the Paradise, originally Mm -hmm. Phantom. And that was a whole saga in itself. The, the making of that and the uh, legal troubles that we got into. And um, anyway, it was a picture that was a disaster when it opened. But was it? It has become a, a favorite among a certain crowd. Yeah. And I went to a 40th anniversary cast and crew screening five years ago at the uh, Cinerama Dome Theater in Hollywood, a big large screen wonderful theater and the place was packed absolutely yeah. packed and they roared at every joke and they thought hmm. at every musical number and they 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 cheered every time a new character was introduced and um it was the kind of screening we dreamed about except it came 40 years too late, too late. <laughs> you find that a lot don't you now uh, a lot of movies that weren't as successful as hoped, shall we say, um, upon release. But they gain a cult following, don't yeah. they? So I'm thinking of movies like Flash Gordon, uh-huh. um, Big Trouble in Little China, just two of my favourites that weren't that successful when they were released. I didn't know uh, Big had a second life. I didn't know that. Sorry? I didn't realise that Big Trouble had had a second life. Oh, yeah. It's huge now. <laughs> Really, that's interesting because I I had I wrote in my book that no picture with the word trouble in it has ever succeeded at the box office. <laughs> well, you're, you're right when that as far as that film's concerned, I think. <laughs> and then and then you went on to do Carrie, uh, yeah. which uh, which was a huge movie. Yeah, first we did Obsession. Oh, sorry, really, Obsession. Yeah, which united me with Bernard Herrmann, and for circumstances that I describe in the in the book, on the first picture we did together, I was the whipping boy. And on the second picture, I was the golden boy. All right. <laughs> much, much better progression than the other way around. Um, but uh, I managed to become friends with Benny. We had a wonderful relationship. And unfortunately, he, he died soon thereafter. But he was very influential on in my thinking about movies. He was not just a composer. He was a uh, a wonderful raconteur and a storyteller, and he he knew his way around telling stories. Um, yeah, he was a big influence. So, so both those movies came out in 1976, I think. Oh no, they were always uh, you know some years apart because we had to finish one before we did the next. All uh, right, sorry. So, Sisters was 72, Phantom was 74. Mm-hmm. Session was 75, Carrie was 76. Right. And he was doing one a year at that point. So that, yeah. was, that was lucky for me. And Very then, lucky. 
and then a friend he had made while he was working in, at Warner Brothers in 1971, another young director on the lot, uh, and they were the only directors with beards working at Warner Brothers at the time, and uh, he uh, he turned out to be George Lucas, and he was shooting THX 1138 at the time, and he and Brian became friends, which is how I came to his attention through Brian's movies. Fab. And uh, while, while uh, prepping for Carrie, Brian, uh, rather, George was prepping Star Wars, and they were casting actors for the films. And mm -hmm. since looking for young actors in the same age range, they mm -hmm. decided to do the casting sessions together. So um, one day in a break during the casting, uh, Brian called. He said, George wants to speak to you. And I had this image of him with a, his arm around George's neck, dragging him to the phone. Um, <laughs> and George said, listen, I, I want you to know I really like your work, and I'd love to work with you someday. I thought, great. But um, he said, I'm, I have already hired an editor for this picture, but I'm going to do one after that that, you know, maybe we could do that, to one, that one together. Right. So I went home and told my wife, I said, you know, it's really nice, but I wish I could be working on this one because it really sounds great. It's called Star Wars. So anyway, uh, he went off to England to shoot Star Wars, and um, we were working on Carrie. And then when they finished the uh, principal photography on, on Star Wars, they, he and his wife, Marsha, uh, who's also, uh, she was an editor in her own right. She had cut. Yeah. American Graffiti, and Alice doesn't live here anymore, and, and Taxi Driver. And uh, so uh, they came through New York. They fired the UK editor that they had hired. They were not happy with this cut. Right. And, um, they came through New York, and we showed them Carrie, and then they went off to San Francisco. And a couple of weeks later, I got a phone call from Marsha saying, uh, we're not going to make our deadline. Can you come help us? So... Uh, so I went back to, uh, I went home and I told my wife, who was, who had just become pregnant with our first child, and I said, I got this offer, you know, the Star Wars, and I'd really like to do it. I have to leave, you know. She said, do it. So I always owe her that. So I went off to do, uh, I had to finish Carrie first. She took me to the end of September, and then um, I was in uh, San Anselmo, where George was working during October, November, and December. And during that time, the three of us, uh, Richard Chu, Marsha, and myself, mm -hmm. were busy recutting the picture. And my, I'd been hired through the end of the year. And when you know the time came, um, a couple of things happened. Uh, one was that Marty Scorsese had been uh, doing a picture called New York, New York, and his editor passed away. So he called Marsha and asked if she could come finish the picture for him. And George had decided that he didn't need three editors anymore. He wanted to finish the picture with just one. And Marsha came to me and said, you know, she explained this to me. And I thought she was going to say, so, you know, thank you very much. Yeah. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Bye. You know, but she said, you know, George wants it to be you. And I was surprised because... I thought Richard had been hired, but he he had been hired on the same basis as me, which was just to the end of the year, and I didn't know that. So um, 
I had expected since he had been, been hired before me that he would stay on. Anyway, it, it turned out to be me, and then I was the editor for the next five months till till the release. And uh, there's a lot of there's some significant reshooting during that that stretch, um, and we went over the picture again and again and again. Um, but that's how it worked. Can you recall, Paul? That, you know, you, you said you got the phone call. And um, your wife's pregnant, and and what a huge decision to have to make, to 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 leave, and and you know, because obviously nobody knew what George Lucas had on his hands at this point. <laughs> nobody had any idea. Can you recall uh, the first time you put eyes on, you know, what what you were editing on Star Wars, and and what did you think? Well, I had a preview of sorts. Because another friend of ours, a guy named Jay Cox, um, he had been a writer for Time Magazine, then he, he, he turned to screenwriting. And Jay had been over to England and visited the set and came right. back with a book of production stills. All right. And uh, we had been at dinner at his house, and I had seen these black and white photographs of uh, the sand crawler and the Jawas and the, the droids and and the stormtroopers and Darth Vader. And, you know, I'd seen all these images, but I didn't know anything about the, the script, of course. Yeah. But uh, that was what had excited me so much. And I, I said again to Jane, I said, you know, I really wish I could work on this one. It looks great. <laughs> you know, of course, George had already done American Graffiti, which is, yeah. you know, probably in terms of return of uh, money on money invested, one of the most successful films of all time. It cost, I think, seven hundred thousand dollars, and it made fifty million. So that's a seventy to one ratio. Yeah. Uh, I think it's hard to match, you know. But um, so you know, it wasn't like George was an unknown quantity or anything. Yeah. No. 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 Not at all. No. He was famous among, especially among us. You know, I was. He's a year and a half older than me, so we're essentially the same age, and. Um, yeah, it was uh, it was very exciting. It was a very rich time in my life, you know, the birth of my first child and working on the picture and uh, working out of New York for the first time. I was introduced to California and the, the wondrous beauty of the place. And um, it was very uh, a rich, intense time. Yeah. So, so you said before there, uh, there was there was a lot of reshoots going on and. Um, you know, and, and it was a, 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 a fraught time trying to get everything done on time. Um, can you recall what, what the particular issues were, why the reshoots were being done? Well, there were a few things. I mean, one, one was that George had not been happy with the look of the creatures in the cantina sequence in the original shooting. Right. So um, he had come back to... Uh, the States and hired artists to draw various creatures that could have, you know, that could be there. And mm -hmm. he, um, he made sort of a, uh, a lineup of these things and, you know, asked various people with, to pick their favorites, you know, they, I guess they only had the budget to make so many and we had to choose, he sort of voted for the ones we thought were cool. 
Um, <laughs> there was the cantina sequence. And then um, I had laid in uh, a Benny Goodman song as source music in the cantina, uh, his version of Avalon, sort of a bouncy uh, uh, kind of thing. And um, I think based on that, one of the characters he designed was playing a clarinet-like type of instrument. Yeah. And uh, John Williams wrote something appropriate to, to that. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, if you listen to Avalon, you sort of get the spirit, and you listen to what John wrote, you sort of have the, it's not the same music, but it's the same spirit, you know? Yeah. Um, then uh, what else? Oh, then uh, one of the things that was problematic in the end was that we didn't have enough material to really build up the tension before the explosion of the Death Star. Napa know-how. Just in time for the holidays, select Craftsman tools are now available at Napa. Celebrate with a Craftsman 20-volt cordless impact wrench kit for just $149.99. It's the perfect gift for everyone in your list, even you. So get great savings on select Craftsman tools, now available at your local Napa store. Quality parts, helpful people. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. At participating Napa Auto Parts stores, while supplies last. Offer ends 12-31-19. Napa know-how. Right now, a five-quart jug of Napa full synthetic motor oil and a platinum filter is just $23.98. That's a great deal for a great oil, which is another reason why this is the most wonderful time of the year. That's Napa full synthetic oil and a platinum filter for $23.98. Quality parts, helpful people. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. General state's pricing. Sales prices do not include applicable state local taxes or recycling fees. While supplies last. Offer ends 12 15 19. Right. One of the things that's key to uh, suspense is the idea that time is running out. Yeah. Uh, we needed a clock going. And to do that, what we did was we shot um, uh, various... Uh, Imperial, uh, I guess you call them technicians or whatever, uh, twisting dials and pulling levers and yeah. sort of getting ready to uh, initiate the Death Star ray. And we used this material twice, once in the first instance when they blew up Alderaan, to present the audience with the model. Well, this is how it's done. So mm -hmm. then reintroduce it at the end they would recognize yeah. that oh my goodness it's about yeah. to happen so yeah. that was uh, essential in getting uh the you know the clock going and and feeling that time was running out and they were operating against you know this bomb that was about to go off and then there were some land speeder shots that had to be redone the land speeder effect was very difficult to achieve um, I think it, they I think they smudged Vaseline on the lens or something like that. Well, no. Uh, the The trick was it was a car, mm -hmm. and it had this. You know, they had built this uh, body over the car, but you had to yeah. you had to conceal the wheels somehow. Yeah. So this is before digital effects. You know, so <laughs> it had to be done for real. And what they did was they rigged a long mirror. Underneath the underside of the of the carriage, right. uh, concealing the wheels, and they shot it that way. And but you could always see the edge of the mirror, 
no matter, you know, and they were shooting a long lens across the desert as it was traveling uh, across screen. And of course, as they sped along, the angle would change. And then somehow you always had, you could always see the edge of the mirror. And uh, Bob Dalva, who was directing the unit, noticed that the crew, after each take, would uh, clean the mirror, the, clean all the dust off the mirror. And he got this idea, wait, don't, don't clean the mirror. Leave the dust on the mirror. Yeah. So that did the trick. Um, and we got not a lot, but we got enough frames to sell the, uh, the effect. And, of course, they painted in a shadow underneath to give the illusion that it was floating. Um, but that was... And then I think that actually was the impetus for George doing the special edition 20 years later when the technology yeah. progressed to the point where he could actually do it. And he thought, well, I'm going to fix that shot of the land speeder, you know? Yeah. But um, they had come up with ingenious uh, devices for like when he, when he first gets in it, the close shot of him getting into it. Uh, I was amazed, you know, I thought, how do they do that? You know, but it was just that body on the end of a long arm that was out yeah. of frame. And uh, <laughs> uh, George said to me, does it bother you when that, when Luke gets in it, it, it sags a bit. And I said, no, it looks like it's full floating on air. I mean, it, that looks great. You know, he explained, <laughs> he explained to me how he did it. And I said, oh, well, of course. But no, it looks great. You know, when so, I was a kid, when I was a kid, Paul, I used to really love, enjoy watching the behind the scenes stuff for Star Wars, you know, the documentaries that they did. I, yeah. I used to be fascinated uh, about, about how they did those kind of things, how they did the explosions, the little models. Yeah. The, um, the, you know, the creatures, just fascinating, absolutely fascinating, so clever. You'll enjoy the book then. I, I, I've got absolutely no doubt I will enjoy your book. I'm really looking forward to it. I spoke, uh, to, some other, I spoke to some other geeky nerds who uh, <laughs> who uh, told me that they had, you know, been fussing over details about Star Wars their whole lives. And they said there was stuff in my book they never knew about. So I thought, well, great. Brilliant. Excellent. I don't um, declare for one minute to know everything about Star Wars. Definitely not. Um, <laughs> so I'm really looking forward to reading your book. Really looking forward. Did, Paul, did you have any idea when you were editing Star Wars uh, no. What, no. what you had? No. How big it was going to be? How could you? I mean, it's it's singular, isn't it? I mean, how you know what other pictures have had that kind of impact? Yeah, I mean, franchises that have lasted longer and had more movies, like the Bond series. Yeah, it's older and they've made more Bond movies than Star Wars movies, and yet they don't have the same uh, uh, cachet. You know, they don't have the no. same impact on the imagination that Star Wars did. And Star Trek was similar, but it's not the same somehow. It's no. So, uh, so did, I, did we have any idea? Of course not. Nobody could anticipate that it would become what it has become. Uh, I think I've read. I think I think I read a quote online. I, I think it was attributed to you, Paul. Um, I'll try and get this right. We thought we were making a kids' movie, but we were making a movie for the kid and all of us. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's right. And and it definitely still appeals 
to you know, I mean, we, we have the new movies. There's obviously there's new Star Wars movies. The the prequels came out when I was um, late teens, early twenties. But Star Wars for me is it it just so appeals to the inner child in yeah. me. Very nostalgic. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think also part of the the uh, reason for its worldwide success because it is global. You know. Yeah. Um, I think it, it it's because it has such a strong moral basis. I don't think you can have a widespread success without that aspect to a story it has yeah. to be rooted in a morality that uh extends beyond any particular religion or um you know philosophy uh, it's it's a basic universal uh morality that that is you know that everyone can relate to yeah uh, and and what was your relationship you know we spoke before about a relationship with directors what was your relationship like with um mr lucas well uh it was great i mean george was very busy of course because uh as he kept saying only he knew the answer to you know a lot of questions that people yeah. had yeah uh, he could determine what something looked like or you know what something sounded like and he was um very very busy i mean there are so many little details uh, in the film, from production design to sound design to, um, you know, not to mention the editing, of course, and the optical, the, you know, the, the visual effects. And so uh, when I came on the picture, he was splitting his time between um, L.A. and San Francisco. He would fly down to L.A. Monday mornings and mm -hmm. work ILM Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And the Wednesday night he would fly back up north, uh, it was about an hour's flight, and yeah. uh, and then uh, we'd work in the editing room Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. And right. uh, he'd take Sunday off, and then Monday morning go back down. So we had him half the week, and ILM had him half the week. And uh, Saturdays were a time when uh, the pressure was off him to to the extent that it ever was. And um, we had some wonderful conversations in the editing room where he and I got to know each other a little better. And he, you mm -hmm. know, he grew up in the Central Valley in uh, Modesto, California, which is a very mm -hmm. different life experience from mine. And you know, I'd say, well, in, you know, New York, we worry about paying the rent. And uh, he said, well, in California, you worry about making the car payments and the mortgage. And the, insurance, and the insurance payments, you know, so these are foreign to me at the time. Yeah. Uh, but uh, he had been to film school and I had not. So right. his, approach, his approach to uh, the work was very analytical and, and carefully thought out. And mine was sort of instinctual and by the seat of my pants. And I had, learned, I had learned to edit by uh, just watching films and uh, trying things. Uh, on the dailies that I was entrusted with. Uh, at first, it was just trying to make it look like a movie. Uh, mm -hmm. And But, uh, you know, I call it, uh, my process was sort of trial and success. I would try something and it would work. And I'd say, oh, that's, that's cool. That's good. So it wasn't so much error. I guess I made, of course, I made errors. But yeah, it was the successes that sort of spurred me on. 
Yeah. Do you think was it? Do you think it was an enjoyable time for George Lucas? Oh, was, he was under terrible pressure. So uh, no, he was he he, uh, he he was he was having you know the studio uh, find him not find him but they they took away ten percent of his salary for going over budget. Right. And he was very upset about that. And uh, it was just a stressful time for him trying to yeah. get it done in, in time. He had to build ILM from the ground up because there wasn't yeah. there wasn't anybody who could do all the work that we needed done. And I remember he came back. Uh, it took a while to get the operation up and running too. And uh, I remember he came to the cutting to the cutting room one day with about. 20 feet of film wrapped around a three-inch cord. He held it up and he said, this shot is the first shot that ILM has produced. I said, great. And he said, it cost a million dollars. Because he was talking about the whole development cost, you know. So the, I remember the shot. It was a shot of the, uh, the guns on the surface of the Death Star going quiet, uh, which was uh, a prelude to each trench run. Yeah. So uh, I thought, wow, well, I hope they get better. (laughs) (laughs) Of course they did. But uh, yeah, it was a a stressful time and uh, it certainly paid off. And and of course, you won your Oscar. Yeah. um, Your Academy Award for your work on... Star Wars, along with um, Marsha and uh, Richard. Yes. What What was that like? Did you? So, first of all, what was it like when you were nominated? Well, it's funny because uh, when I went back to New York after Star Wars ended, I saw Brian, and he, you know, by then the picture had opened, and yeah, almost the first time I saw him after that, he said, "You're gonna get, you're gonna get nominated for an Oscar." And he, he called it. He just said, you're going to get nominated. So I thought, wow. You know, so then it happened. And uh, we also got nominated for uh, an editor's award from the yeah. American Cinema Editors, the Eddie. And uh, we I came out to uh, California. It was a week before the Oscars. And by that time, I was working on a picture called King of the Gypsies. Mm-hmm. And... I uh, went to this dinner for American cinema editors, and um, we didn't win. No. So I thought, well, you know, some guy from New York and the edit and the director's wife and an Asian man, you know, of course they're not going to, you know. I thought, well, this is very sort of a clubby atmosphere, you know. They're yeah. not, not going to welcome us with open arms. So of course we didn't win. So then the following week came back. And uh, the other nominees we were up against were Walter Murch for uh, Julia and uh, Michael Kahn uh, for Close Encounters. Mm-hmm. And um, who else? Uh, Smoking the Band that was nominated. They were sort of an oddball choice. <laughs> and, um, oh, and uh, Bill Reynolds for The Turning Point. Turning Point was nominated for 11 awards and it won zero. Got nothing. Nothing, but, uh, you know, it was highly regarded. And, in fact, Reynolds won the, the editor's award. So, you know, even though I'd been nominated, we were nominated for the Oscar, I didn't feel it was a, 
shoe in in the least. Uh, no. Very stiff competition, and there's no way of telling how it would go. Um, yeah, it was very exciting. And then, and then of course you won. Um, yeah. And 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 this was only your sixth picture. Yeah. You you must have been thinking, oh, this is easy. This. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, not easy, but I. I thought, well, this could happen again. Yeah. But so, was, you know, so early in your career. Yeah, it was. It was earlier in my career. It was before I even thought about winning one. You know, uh, I've known other editors. Uh, my friend uh, Richie Marks, who passed away last New Year's Eve, a wonderful editor. He uh, he had an extraordinary. You should look up his his uh, CV. Sometimes he. Mm-hmm. Uh, Apocalypse Now and, and yeah. um, Godfather Two and uh, innumerable films and Tears of Endearment, Terms of Endearment, and um, you know he had an extraordinary uh, collection of films to his name. He never won. So, and I think you know as the years went by, it, it starts to become a a thing that you know. I mean, for for me, it happened so soon that I hadn't even developed a. a a desire for one. It just was out of out, off my radar, you know. Yeah. And then it happened. So uh, I feel extremely fortunate. I mean, my God, this I got this award uh, when my daughter was a year old, and mm. changed my career. I mean, think of how fortunate that is. You're, you know, coming into the business and trying to make a name for yourself, and something like that happens, uh, changed my whole life. Incredible, but well deserved. I must say, well deserved. Um, Just try to do your best on every picture, you know. So when did you find out that there was going to be a sequel? Um, about the time of the Oscars, I think. Gary Kurtz came to me and said, how would you like to work on the next one? I said, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I'm in. <laughs> I'm in, yes, Absolutely. And uh, so obviously the the Empire Strikes Back and, and George Lucas rel- relinquished directing uh, directing duties for that one. Um, he, he handed it over to Irvin Kirshner. What was what was it like working with Irvin Kirshner? Kirsch was a big kid. He was essentially a sort of a uh, a teenager who never grew up. And <laughs> he was very enthusiastic, and he was um, he had been a photographer. He had a very keen eye. And um, he uh, he was a very a thorough professional. Um, he was he would come, but you know, he would come into my editing room every once in a while and rant and rave about something that he was frustrated about on the set. And then you know, I guess he felt my room was a safe space to <laughs> to give full expression to his feelings and. Uh, He'd come in and scream and holler and then walk out again. And I think, <laughs> thank you for sharing your anger with me. <laughs> um, was but, it was it more smooth sailing with Empire Strikes Back? Was well, it, I wasn't on the first film, so you know I came in later. So I don't really yeah. know. Uh, I don't know what went on during the shooting of the first one. But I asked George, I said, "How come you didn't want to direct the second one?" He said, "Well." 
This is the executive producer does less work and gets a bigger check. <laughs> he was making a joke, but he really, I don't know, he, I guess he at that time felt that he uh, didn't want to go through it again. It had been very yeah. stressful for him. And, he just thought, I have somebody else, and he was also building the ranch at that time, so he was, yeah, he was uh, occupied with other things. But Irvin and Kirshner was a great choice. He he did such a great job, nailed it, as did yourself. Tremendous movie. What did did you feel any pressure? You know, it's it's the sequel to the 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 biggest movie of all time. No, 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 no pressure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously. I mean, it was so exciting to be working on. It had been three years. It would have been two years at that point since the yeah. picture came out, and the the demand uh, for more was so great that it was you know it was like the hottest project you could be on. So that was tremendously exciting. Um, well, I didn't feel any pressure. No. Uh, no, I mean. I, I knew we were going to be successful. I, I you know, I, I had confidence that uh, we'd be able to to deliver what what audiences wanted. And I thought Yoda would be our secret weapon. I thought, wow, when they get a load of Yoda, the people are going to really go crazy. You know, it, it was a huge gamble, wasn't it? Huge, um, huge risk. I think having a, having what was essentially a puppet in the movie. Well, yeah. Yeah, there are all sorts of tricks, like the. Uh, um, I forget the name of them now, but the the the, uh, the big lumbering creatures on Alderaan, yeah. But those were just elephants with costumes, you know. And yeah, it was uh, it was brilliant. I mean, so they they resorted to all sorts of um, things that that worked that we didn't really understand how it was working, but um, but it's all in the book. You can read all about it. Yeah, I mean, the Empire Strikes Back is regarded as the well, among most fans, I would say, is regarded as the best Star Wars movie. Would Would you agree with that? Uh, no, but I understand it. Um, I think it's, you know, you have to give credit to the first one, where everything was fresh and everything was invented, and um, the, you know, the Empire. Empire was, I guess, more polished, and from a shooting standpoint, and um, the characters were more fully developed. So, I understand that, but you know, it, none of it would have been possible without the first one. So, oh yeah, absolutely. I still give, uh, and it, it's a darker, in, darker in tone. I mean, very much it, so. It's a kind of a joyousness to the first film that I think has largely vanished from the, from the sequels. Um, yeah, I, you know, there's a humor, um, in the first one that yeah. st started to go away. I mean, it's still there in empire. There's, you know, when R2 falls into the swamp, you know, there's some jokes, yeah. that kind of thing. But, um, the lightheartedness sort of seeped away, and now it's become about itself in some measure. I don't know. It's uh, so. So, are you a fan? Have you seen the new Disney? Well, I, I go to them all the 
time. You know, I, I see them all the time. Uh, I liked the I liked solo. I mean, I'm one of the few who did. Um, what I liked about it was all the the reliance on uh, the creatures and not so much on fighting. You know, yeah. I thought the most the fun part of Star Wars was like the cantina sequence and the the droids inside the sand crawler and sort of the you know the the bizarre uh, look of of that those worlds. You know. Yeah, uh, and the fighting seemed to me to be um, uh, it was not my it was not my favorite part of the film, and that seems to be what they've seized on and expanded more than anything else. Yeah, I enjoyed Solo. It was it was it had a very Western vibe about it. But my favorite one of the Disney movies is Rogue One. Yeah, Rogue One is very good. That was uh, John Knowles' idea. Yeah, sort of a prequel to. Uh, to a new hope, so yeah. led right into it. It was a very, very smart idea. Yeah, oh, it was so entertaining. I loved it. I think I went to see it four times yeah. at the cinema. But I understand they had their own issues as well in development of that movie as well. Um, Rogue One. Well, the, um, challenge, the challenge is that all the characters in it had to die. Yeah. You know, so yeah. that so right away, you're, it's not going to be a happy story. No. So where, so, so Paul, where, where can your book be bought? Is it available here in the UK as well? Well, uh, I believe, you know, you, you can get it online. I know you can get it online. I'm not sure what the uh, distribution is like in the UK. I think, I think, it's, I think it's available in bookstores. Um, but I know you can order it on Amazon or you can order it on the Barnes & Noble website. And also on the website for the Chicago Review Press, who are the publishers of the book. Uh, Paul, thank you so much for your time. Really interesting. Really enjoyed that. Thank you so much. It's it's uh, incredible to have you on the show. Thank you so much. It's very very uh, enjoyable talking with you. Paul Hirsch, there, incredibly interesting fella. He's, he's what a job, what a career. He's had, I wanted to talk to him about his other movies as well, like Footloose, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Planes, Trains and Automobiles, The Secret of My Success, Falling Down, Mission Impossible. He's done loads. He has done loads. And like I said in there, his career spans five decades. Wow, what a guy. Um, but, you know, my first Oscar winner. There you go. <laughs> chuffed a bits, chuffed a bits. So I just want to say thanks again to the executive producers for this show, Glenn Davies, Joy Gradwell from Mind Active, Connor Comics in Cumbernauld in Scotland, and Mark Straker. Thank you so much. Your contribution means an awful lot, and it helps develop the show and helps get the show seen. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you found that interesting. I've got at least two more Star Wars guests for you before the movie The Rise of Skywalker is released. So stay tuned. Thank you very much. and I'll speak to you again soon. Bye-bye. Napa know-how.
Just in time for the holidays, select Craftsman tools are now available at Napa. Celebrate with a Craftsman 20-volt cordless impact wrench kit for just $149.99. It's the perfect gift for everyone in your list, even you. So get great savings on select Craftsman tools, now available at your local Napa store. Quality parts, helpful people. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. At participating Napa Auto Parts stores, while supplies last. Offer ends 12-31-19. The Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. Yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations.